Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Northridge. Glad you're here. So uh, I am going to start way different than how I was supposed to. Uh, and I just, I was prompted of this before we prayed on this stage in the circle. So I don't know who needs this this morning. But I think Mother's Day is a very special day. And it's not just because we get to honor mothers. I think it's because we get to honor the fact that people matter. And I don't know, some of you may have walked in here. And this is your reality. This was a great week. Like, man, it was full. It was amazing. Like, it just went kind of how you wanted it to. And you just feel amazing. You feel loved. This is a great week for you. And that's awesome. But some of you, you walked in here and you have a, you, you put on a good face today. But if you were going to be honest, you felt a little bit like what Laura was talking about. You feel like an imposter. You feel like you don't measure up. And so I just want you to know, before we jump into the stuff today, that God loves you. Deeply, desperately, and completely. For some of you, this is a great day. For some of you, this is one of the hardest days you have to face this whole year. And I just want you to know, God loves you are seen. You are known. And so if you don't feel loved and you don't feel known, just know that that's a lie that somebody else told you or maybe you're telling yourself because God loves you and we love you. We see you. I love you guys. All right. That was way off from where we were starting. But I'm glad that you're here. So um, when I was a teenager... Uh, I went on a hike in the Badlands of South Dakota with three other guys. Now, the Badlands, this is what they look like. If you've never been to the Badlands of South Dakota, they are beautiful, but they're also extremely rugged, very dangerous. Uh, the nearest hospital, if you go hiking here, is more than an hour away. It is a very, very awesome but very intense place. And so uh, I was hiking with these three other guys, and we were making our way through this dry creek bed. It's about a few feet wide, and it was about five feet deep. And so the dirt walls on either side of us were about at my shoulder height, right? I know some of you would be like at your navel or something because you're taller. Ryan, I'm just thinking of you, okay? Uh, but, but for me, five feet is like at my shoulders, all right? It's like almost everything that I am. And so these walls are, we're, we're hiking through this area, right? And, uh, and the three guys are behind me, and I'm kind of leading the way through this dry creek bed. And, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, out of this bush that's, uh, again, about head face level, I see something out of the corner of my eye jump out of the bush. And cro it crosses my field of vision and lands at my feet. Now, at the same time that I see this, I hear a rattle. It's something growing up in South Dakota I knew actually very well because we'd hear this quite often. I knew exactly what that rattle sounded like. And I saw this thing jump out and I heard the rattle and so my eyes and my brain told me, you need for self-preservation purposes to do something. And so all, now all of this that I'm explaining to you, of course, happens in like two seconds. 
Okay? And I see this, and I hear the rattle, and so my brain kicks adrenaline through my entire body, and I leap. I leap straight up, and I land, I kid you not, on my feet on that five-foot-high wall next to me. I kid you not. I'm not making this up. And I'm standing up there, and I'm just like, my whole body is shaking like this. Right? And then the three guys understand they watched this happen. They saw me fly through the air. <laughs> and I land on my feet. And they think it's both amazing and hilarious. So the three of them are just back there laughing at me, right? Until they see the snake. And then they're like, oh, and then they climb out, right? And they're, they're up there with me. Turns out it was actually not a rattlesnake, it was a bull snake imitating a rattlesnake. Did you know they can do that? They totally can. I asked a ranger on the way out. I said, have you ever seen this? He said, oh, yeah, it happens all the time. It's how they actually keep threats away. They act like a rattlesnake. They can make the sound. And so thankfully, it was just a bull snake. But all of that to say, this was incredible. And so I was, I kid you not, I was shaking for like the next 15, 20 minutes. My, I couldn't calm my, you know, my hands down because the adrenaline was just still there, even though I just needed it for that two-second jump, Right. Now, this vertical, I could train the rest of my life. I could try the next 10,000, next 100,000 times, and I would never come even close to making that jump ever again. It was incredible. It was pretty awesome. I was pretty, I was pretty impressed with it after I thought about it, and I was glad I was alive, right? But here's why I bring that story up. That story is true, but how would you, everybody here, be able to verify that that story is true? How, would the, how is the only way that you could verify that what I just told you is actual fact? You would have to talk to the three other people that were with me. They saw this happen, right? That's the only way you could verify it. Now keep that in mind. So today we're continuing our FAQ series, Frequently Asked Questions. We are digging into questions that everybody is asking. Whether they're a Christian or not, whether you believe in God or not, people are asking these questions all across the board, whether in your head or you've asked them out loud. Most people have asked them both ways. And today's question is a really, really hard one, but extremely important. The question is, can I trust the Bible? Can I trust it? Is it true? Is it accurate? Should I listen to it? Oh, that's a heavy question, isn't it? Happy Mother's Day, by the way. This is a heavy, heavy question. Now, the truth is we could spend the rest of the day, we could spend several days digging into theology. We could spend the rest, the next several days uh, digging into Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. And we could, we could start looking into hermeneutics. Anybody know what hermeneutics is? Hermeneutics is the study of how to interpret the Bible. Mm, how many want to take that class? I didn't think so. We could dig into uh, the historical context of every single book of the Bible. We could spend days doing that. Those are called seminary classes. If you're really interested in that, seminary classes for you. So, But here's what I want to do today. Because some of you, you come in, you already trust the Bible. You're good. I, you already, like, this is already solidified for you. You know this is what you need to trust. Some of you in here, you, could care, you couldn't care less about this. It's okay. 
What do we always say in Northridge? This is a safe place for you. No matter where you are, who you are. This is a safe place. If you don't believe in this and you want nothing to do with this, that's okay. We understand. But I still think it's important to ask the question, can I trust the Bible? Can you trust the Bible? Is it truthful? Is it accurate? So here's what I want to do today. I'm not going to prove to you today that the Bible is true. If you're hoping for that, that would be a tall order, right? Because if I had the golden nugget, the golden thing, like, and, and I have the answer is to, it'll tell everybody that the Bible is true, then everybody would know that and we wouldn't even have to ask this question. Right? Let's be honest. But what I do want to do today is I want to give you some food for thought. I want, you to give, I want to give you today something that you can think about. Something for you to mull over and say, hmm, I never thought about that before. So I'm going to go through four things that tell us, that point toward the reality that the Bible is not only true, but can be trusted. All right? Because the answer to that question, can I trust the Bible, what do you think the answer is? What do you think I'm going to tell you? The answer is yes. Absolutely, completely, without question, yes. All right. So before I get into the four things, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the words in this book are thousands of years old. Sometimes we don't think about that. Sometimes we read certain words and we're like, yeah, clearly it's thousands of years old. But sometimes we forget, don't we? We forget that this is thousands of years old. Now, just to put this in perspective, we don't even experience things this old most of the time. For example, the United States of America. Did you know that we're only about 250 years old? If you figure like 1776, we declared our independence, we've existed for about 250 years, give or take a few years. Compared to the Bible, we're like an infant. We're like a little baby compared to the Bible. The oldest parts of the Bible are more than 3,000 years old. They were written more than 3,000 years ago. By some dating, it may be 3,500, almost to 4,000 years old. Really, really old stuff. Now, that's really cool, but the truth is, it doesn't matter if you can't trust it. Right? Just me saying, the Bible's like 3,000 years old, and you kind of go, yeah, it feels like it, right? It feels irrelevant. Well, if it's 3,000 years old, but you're like, I can't even trust this thing, who cares how old it is? So I want to talk about why we can trust God's Word, why we can trust Scripture, why we can trust the Bible, all right? So, number one, unity. The Bible is written, 66 books, about 40 different authors. It is written in three different languages originally. Now it's translated in hundreds of languages. But it was originally written in three different languages, 40 different authors, 66 books, three different continents, over the span of anywhere from one to 2,000 years. Just consider that. How many of you have read a book recently that was written by 40 different authors over a span of 2,000 years in three different languages from three different continents. 
If you've read the Bible recently, you have. Now, what's really cool about this is the Bible has incredible unity with all of those authors, all of those languages, all of those that span of time. The Bible is incredibly unified in its message as you go through from front cover to back cover. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. So there's this guy named Frank Turek who is an apologist. And he, basically all that means is he defends Christianity. He defends the Bible. And he gives a couple of really interesting points when he's talking about why we can trust the Bible that goes along with eyewitness accounts that we have in Scripture. So let me give you a couple of those things. For example, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let me ask you this question. Would it be important to you that the Gospels were written soon after Jesus' life, since it's about Jesus' life? Would it be important to you? To me, it would be somewhat important. Like, we didn't go generations and generations and generations, and eventually somebody said, you know what, these are great stories. We should write them down. That's not what happened. The Gospels record Jesus' life, and we know that they were written very early after Jesus' life. Now, how do we know that? So the Apostle Paul wrote a book called 1 Corinthians. He wrote a letter to the people in Corinthians, uh, in Corinth, and it's called 1 Corinthians. In that book, guess what he does? He quotes one of the Gospel writers, his name is Luke, when he writes that letter. So, here's what we know. And by the way, you could talk to atheists. You could talk to scholars that don't believe in God. They don't believe in the Bible. You could talk to anybody, and they will tell you that the Apostle Paul, we know this, wrote 1 Corinthians in 55 AD. About 20-ish years after Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave. Okay? He quotes the book of Luke, which means the book of Luke had already been written. Which means the book of Luke was written sometime between 55 A.D. and Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. We're talking about just a few years. It may have been written right after. We're just saying we know that it was in that span of time. Now let me give you something else. And this is kind of a weird one. Frank Turek talks about this. And you'll have to, you can dig into this if you really want to. But uh, you might want to write this down. But later today... Because it's Mother's Day, and I'm sure mothers, you're going to love to do this later. I'm being facetious here. But if you want to dig into this, Google this later. And this Google, here's, here's what you're going to Google. You're going to Google undetermined. Catch this. Now, some of you are like, man, I've never Googled this. This is going to be awesome. Undetermined or undesigned coincidences. Uh, we'll, we'll say undesigned coincidences. Google it. You're going to come up with a definition that you've never heard before. Here's what it will tell you. Undesigned coincidences are when two or more people are giving an account of the same event that they all saw, but they all saw it from different perspectives. Okay? Undesigned coincidences. So, for example, this person is telling the story from what they saw over here, but they missed some details because of their angle. Or because they just left some stuff out. And then you talk to this person over here, and this person is telling this version of the story, but they add some details that this person over here forgot or they didn't see. And then when you add those two together, guess what happens? 
It lines them up and you go, oh, this person's story makes sense now because this person saw this happen over here and that's why this person did this. And you put those two together, you put all of these things together and they line up and it makes a full story without these people getting in the room and getting their story straight first. They're undesigned coincidences. These are things that line up in the story without people getting the story straight. This is, by the way, if we have several, we have some police officers that are connected to our church, they'll, they'll tell you this. If you want to get to the truth and you have several different people that saw what happened or people that might be guilty, might be involved, what are they going to do with all those people? Are they going to get everybody together? Are they going to group them all together and be like, okay, everybody, tell me what happened. Tell me the story. Is that what they're going to do? No way. We all know what they're going to do. They're going to separate them all out, and they're going to say, okay, tell me your version of the story. And then they're going to go over here. Tell me your version of the story. And then tell me your version of the story. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to find the truth. How? Because they're going to line all this stuff up, and they're going to say, all of, everybody said this, and so it points very clearly to this is what happened. Guess what the Bible is? The Bible is God's version of doing the same thing. God allowed so many witnesses to see these different things from all these different perspectives. And they're telling these different versions of the story. And then you line them all up. And they align perfectly. It's amazing. Some would say miraculous, that it even works. The truth is that God's word, the Bible, has incredible unity. You can line everything up with it, and it's amazing. All right? Now, these eyewitnesses, they declare very clearly that they saw the truth, that they actually experienced these things that are recorded in the Scripture. They're not like, ah, I made it up or anything. No, they say just the opposite. They say, we saw these things. I want to read for you what Peter says in one of his letters to a bunch of other brand new Christians. Listen to what he says and declares these things. For, uh, 2 Peter 1, 16-21. Peter says, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, we didn't just come up with a good story. We didn't just make this stuff up. Okay? We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. In other words, he's saying we saw this. We heard this. I'm not making this stuff up. This is not something that we just thought was really cool to tell. We were there. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote. For their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. And then listen to what he says here. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. That's important. Let me read it one more time because it's very important to catch that. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Here's what a lot of people believe. 
Some of you in here believe this. That's okay. Like I said, it's a safe place for you to be if you do. But that's not what we believe. We don't believe that this Bible was just written by humans because they came up with some good stuff. I can tell a decent story, like about snakes in the Badlands of South Dakota. I can do that. I can make some stuff up, actually. But that's not what this is. This is not authors saying, hmm, how should we package this? How can we make this believable? That's not what this is. A lot of people believe that, but that's not what we believe. What we believe is what Peter wrote here. We believe that this is Holy Scripture. This is the Word of God. This was Holy Spirit anointed. People wrote down the words that God wanted them to write. That's what we believe. And so we stand on this book, on this word, on this group of books and authors that say, we saw these things happen. They are real. They are true. All right. So the Bible has a lot of unity. The second thing that we see that shows and points to the Bible being true is science and archaeology. Now, uh, if you were not here two weeks ago, I think it was, yeah, two weeks ago, we talked about God and science. If you love science, if you're kind of one of those, you know, intellectual minds, we, we hammered on that. Some of you love that day. Some of you are like, I like the touchy-feely stuff. You hated that day. Okay, I get it. But we talked about all the science and God and how we think that science and God are at odds. They beat each other up. They're enemies. And I'm here to tell you, I told you this two weeks ago, I'm here to say today, they are not enemies. God created science. Thank you very much. He did. We sometimes use science as a bludgeoning tool against God, but God's the one that created all of it. Science is very simply us discovering how God did stuff. Wow, God, this is amazing. Like, did you know that? Yeah, I made it. Science and archaeology, believe it or not, points to the Bible being true. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. Um, there's a ton of evidence that we have found over in Egypt of a huge mass exodus of people about the time when Exodus says the Israelites left. Now, here's what you know. If your brain is working right now, you say, well, yeah, but that doesn't prove that Moses had all the plagues and they had, you know, the angel of death came through and, and the Passover and all that stuff. That doesn't prove all that. No, you're right. It doesn't prove all that. But what it does is it points to the reality that the Bible talks about a mass exodus of people that left Egypt at a certain time in history. And when we look at the archaeological evidence, we find that there was a mass exodus of people from Egypt in that time period. Does it prove that it happened exactly as the Bible said? No. Does the evidence point to the possibility, the reality that it probably did? Yes. Let me give you one other thing. Uh, if you were here two weeks ago, I mentioned this. Noah's Ark and the Great Flood. How many of you think that that was just, you know, uh, a wonderful kid's story? And, and maybe you grew up in Sunday school. Some of you did. Some of you are like, what's Sunday school? <laughs> You're like, I don't, I don't even know what we're talking about. Some of you grew up in Sunday school and you saw a little funny, like animated color picture of the ark with Noah, you know, sticking out the top and the giraffes were sticking their heads out this way and the elephants. And of course, all the animals are smiling, right? They're all like, ee, 
We're riding on Noah's Ark. And it's painted on the wall. How many of you had that? I remember seeing some of those things, right? And so we think of Noah's Ark as this little, fun, little kid's story. The reality is it was God destroying every living thing on planet Earth. That's what it was. My point is, if God destroyed the entire planet by flooding the whole thing all at once, we should have some kind of evidence of that. The reality is we do. As I mentioned two weeks ago, we have found marine fossils on top of virtually every mountain range on our planet, including whale bones, whale fossils. Any, we're talking about animals that only live in the water on the top of mountains. We found, we found it all over the place. Does it prove that Noah had an ark and that his giraffes were sticking their necks out and smiling as we paint them? No, of course it doesn't prove that. Does it prove, does it point to the reality that there was a global flood? It actually does. The Bible can be trusted. Absolutely. Now, some of you like, okay, that's very scholarly. That's very intellectual. That's like, okay, we're working our brains a lot here. And some of you are like, man, Mother's Day, we are hitting it kind of deep here today. I'm sorry. I do. Happy Mother's Day. I'm glad you're here. But now let me get into a couple of more. The, the last two are going to be a little bit more common sense. These, these last two are a little bit more practical. Okay? The third reason we know the Bible can be trusted is because of its content. The biblical content. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me unpack this for a minute. Let's take the Gospels again. Okay? I'm just, I've been picking on the Gospels a lot today, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four books written by four different authors, talking about the same thing. They're talking about the life of Jesus, what Jesus did, what Jesus said, the miracles he performed, all those things. It's four different books from four different people about the same person, about Jesus. Okay, that's what the Gospels are. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you look at the people who wrote those, just think about this. They recorded incredibly embarrassing stories about themselves. Think about it. Some of the writers, they had to talk about how they lost faith. They had to talk about how they failed Jesus. Peter is talked about a lot about how he failed, but he was called Satan by Jesus. Oh, that's a good day. Peter failed at walking on water. He was doing it, and then he failed miserably. And then, think about this, all four gospel writers either write about this overtly or tell us this kind of subversively. They say that when Jesus was arrested, what did all the disciples do? You guys know what happened. What did they do? They ran. They took off. They left him. When Jesus was arrested by the authorities, they came in and arrested him, and, and, and Peter was ready to fight, right? And then when Jesus said, no, 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 and he restores the guy's ear, remember that? He puts his ear back on and he heals him, and he says, Peter, we're not going to do this. When Jesus does all that, then the, the disciples realize, oh, Jesus has given himself up. We're out of here. And they run. That's pretty embarrassing. How many of us think, in fact, let me just ask you this. Think about some of your most embarrassing moments. 
right? Some of your most shameful moments, some of the things that you just, you can't stand about yourself. How many of you are like, you know what I want to do with all those moments? I want to write a book. I want to tell everybody how embarrassing and how ashamed I am of myself. I, I want to record those for all to read for the rest of time. Is that your first thought? Of course it's not. No way. How many of you, when your kids are acting up, you're like, quick, grab the camera. We need to post this on social media. When they're throwing a tantrum, are we like, yes, this is going to be, how many likes is this going to get? Man. By the way, if you catch a tantrum and put it on social media, I think you're going to get a lot of likes. Because I think people are going to be like, yeah, somebody's being real. Now we're seeing into your real life. The truth is, the writers of the Bible can be trusted. Why? Because they told incredibly incriminating, embarrassing, shameful stuff about themselves. They left Jesus and they recorded it for all of us to read. Now, this could be slightly offensive, what I'm about to say next. But it is true. Guess who the heroes are around the crucifixion? It was, I'll give you a hint. It wasn't the men. It was the, the women. The ladies, they were the heroes. They were. The, the disciples, they ran, they scattered, they left. According to Scripture, again, the gospel writers, they're writing this about themselves. They said, we all ran. And you know who was around the cross when Jesus was on the cross, crucified? All of the women were there. You know why that's a big deal? It wasn't just because they were grieving and they were mourning. Yes, of course they were doing that. They were weaving, they, they were mourning, they were wailing, all that stuff. That was definitely happening. But you know why it's amazing that they were there at the cross with Jesus? It was like putting a sign all the way around them that says, I am with Jesus. What you do to Jesus, we're with him. In other words, Jesus was crucified proclaiming who he was, all of the followers, they didn't know, but they may have been crucified right along with him. They were throwing their lot in with Jesus. The women were. Now, take this three days later. What happens three days later? Jesus dies on the cross. He's put in the grave. He's put in the tomb. They seal the tomb. Three days later, what happens? Jesus resurrects from the grave, right? Guess who the first people are to witness the resurrection of Jesus? It wasn't the disciples. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't James. It wasn't John. It wasn't Mark. It wasn't Matthew. Who was it? It was the women. They were there, going there to prepare Jesus' body for burial. And they were the, they were the, for the, first, the first, first ones. They were the first eyewitnesses to see that it was empty. And Jesus was alive. Now, this is going to be slightly offensive as well. But it's true. In Jesus' day, did you know this? Women were not even allowed to testify in court because women were not considered to be reliable sources of information. I'm not, I, I'm not saying it's right, ladies in the room. I completely think that's awful and horrible and wrong. They had it wrong. I know that. You know that. But in Jesus' day, women were not allowed to testify in court because their evidence could not be trusted. Again, did they have it wrong? Wow, did they have it wrong. But that's true. Let me ask you this question. Think about this. 
If the disciples were going to make up a story, and they're going to write about it, why would they make the story so embarrassing about them? And the first people in the story that had to be the eyewitnesses, the evidence, the people who are going to give an account who cannot even go into a court of law and give evidence, why would they make that be women, the first ones to be eyewitnesses? Why would they do that? Unless that's exactly what happened. Unless it's true. The disciples had no reason. The writers of the Bible had no reason to write what they wrote. Unless it's true. They had nothing to gain. Nothing earthly to gain by writing these words down. You know what these words brought people? Nothing but pain and suffering and death. That's the truth. In fact, it brings us to our fourth point. The fourth reason we can trust the Bible is because they died for it. I know we don't like to talk about this. I know we don't like to think about this. But the truth is that most of the people that wrote the Bible, God's Word, they died for it. Now, here's what we know. People today die all the time. They are killed for their faith in Jesus. Literally, that's going to happen today. It'll happen tomorrow. It happened yesterday. It happens on a daily basis. People live in other parts. It does not usually happen here. We live in a country where freedom of religion is the name of the land, right? Seems to be changing a bit, by the way. So don't take it for granted. But right now, freedom of Religion is something that we protect as a freedom. Okay? Other places in the world, that's not the truth. And so people who adhere to this, they believe that this is true, they often pay with their lives for it. Now, I'm going to say something that maybe you've never thought of. That does not prove the Bible is true. What that proves, if somebody's willing to die for God's word, it doesn't prove that God's word is true. What it proves is that they believe it's true. Does that make sense? If they're willing to die for Jesus, it's because they believe the Bible is true, but it doesn't prove the Bible is true. Here's what does prove the Bible is true, though. The people that wrote these words died for these words. That shows you something. There are hundreds of people not only the writers themselves, but hundreds of people that saw Jesus alive after the resurrection. It's recorded in Scripture. Now, what do you think those people got for claiming that and believing in that and adhering to that? Nothing but pain, suffering, and death. If you are telling a really good lie, and then it comes to the point where you have to suffer incredible pain as a result of that lie, how many of you are going to be like, yep, it's, it's a, it, nope, this is the truth. I'm going to stick by it. No, you know what you're going to do? You know what most people do? They'll be like, okay, I give up. I'm sorry, you got me. This is a lie. It was a hoax. We, we, we came up with this whole thing, and I'm sorry. I apologize. But they didn't do that. They died. Why? 
because this is true. People aren't going to die for a lie. But they will die for the truth. If they know it to be true. So can the Bible be trusted? Yeah. But here's a question, and we, this, is, this is maybe a hard thing to understand, and we don't like this part of it. But why is it important that we even ask this question? That this book is true. Why is it important that we ask that question? Here's why. We need, as human beings, a standard that is outside of ourselves to believe in. We need something that is beyond our opinion, beyond our intellectual, rational mind, more than my opinion, more than, and by the way, I include, I very much include me in this. We need a standard that is way beyond Pastor Brent. If you just accept everything that I always say on a Sunday morning without checking it according to Scripture or checking it according to facts, that's not good. Because I'm not God. Ask my wife, she'll tell you very clearly, I am not God. I am not God. Just because I get the opportunity to speak on behalf of God, that's it. I am simply a messenger. I am simply an ambassador trying to be a good steward of what God has given to me. Do not take me for being God. You know who you do need to take God at his word? This. This is his word. This is God's word. Take God at his word, not mine. But also don't take him at yours. We need a standard outside of ourselves. And the truth is these words, they're not just words. They're life-changing. They're powerful. In fact, let me prove this to you. Scripture tells us that they are alive and that they're powerful. Listen to what Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says. It says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. Hmm. There's a lot of body stuff going on in there. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Oh, man, does that not just make you want to sit down and start reading? I doubt that it does. Man, I would love to expose my innermost thoughts. Man, I'd love to be naked before the Lord. No? That's what Scripture does. If I were going to be honest, I think one of the biggest reasons... There's two big reasons why we avoid Scripture. I think one is it's intimidating. I mean, you look at this thing. How many of you would just know, you, you, I give you this Bible, and you'd be like, I know exactly where I want to go. I'm going to turn to Ezekiel. Yes, Ezekiel would be a great place to start. That's what I opened it up to. <laughs> How many of you just, like, I don't know. Um, ooh, yeah, 1 Corinthians. Friend talked about that the other day. Let's start there but have no clue where it came from or what it is, right? The truth is, we 
stay away from Scripture because we don't know where to start. We don't know how to do it. Plus, we don't want to hear what it has to say. How many of you love being your innermost thoughts just stripped out for everybody here? What, what if I, I've, I've mentioned this once before, what if I had a device in the room that projected your thoughts right now on the wall? How many of you would be like, oh, that's a nasty, that's a scary thought? Some of you, you know what we'd see? We'd, we'd see like some of you are thinking about lunch because you have reservations for Mother's Day. You're thinking about the, the pasta or the chicken or the steak you're going to have in a little bit. Like you're, th- you're like, well, I wasn't thinking about it. Now I am. Thank you. The truth is scripture exposes the truth whether we like it or not. It's one of the biggest reasons you should dig into this. Because you will find out who you are, who other people are, and who God is. Let me read one more. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says, all scripture, every word in here, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Can I be just, let me just be blunt I think one of the biggest reasons we're not doing every good work for God is because we're not ever, ever, ever reading the manual. I don't think we know what we're supposed to do. I don't think we know how we're supposed to do it. If we're going to do every good work, and what that says is true... It is to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. This is what we need. We need God's word in our life and in our heart to do every good work because this is how God prepares us. If we follow God, he promises some amazing things. Let me end with a story. So many years ago, I took uh, four other guys with me into the Cloud Peak Wilderness. Notice my stories have to do with hiking outdoors, okay, because I love that. So I took these guys to the Cloud Peak Wilderness in the Bighorn Mountains in Wyoming, okay? And the Cloud Peak Wilderness is one of those amazing spaces, amazing places, and there's this particular mountain that I was taking these guys to, and I said, it's really, really far into the wilderness, and so we're going to have to backpack in. We're going to have to carry everything we need to survive. We're going to have to go in. We'll set up camp and then we'll go leave base camp and we'll go climb the mountain and we're going to take you up on the mountain and show you all these things. And then we're going to come back down. We'll camp again and then we'll backpack out. So we're going to be out for like two nights, three days. Okay. And, uh, and so we got out there and we have all of our stuff and, and we're, you know, on the way and everything. And uh, the first day, it's eight miles into the wilderness incredibly tough mountain terrain. That's why I love it. I was like, ah, struggle. This is good. On the way in, one of the guys, I tried to help him understand. I said, now you're going to want to carry everything you think you need. Carry half of that because it will weigh you down. Well, he didn't listen. He carried, his pack was twice as heavy as it was supposed to be. And that night he was so sick from exhaustion. He had to go over behind a rock and like vomit. I kid you not, we were really worried about it. How many of you would like to go on a trip with, uh, with Brent sometime? 
I have some great places to go. All right, I got a couple of takers. Good. All right. But he was like, he was so exhausted from carrying this pack. He was sick. The next day we switched it up and somebody else carried his pack for him. But we got there and he was much better the next day. The next day we get to the mountain where we're going to climb this mountain. And this mountain is covered in boulder fields. Okay, And in fact, we have a, yes, I have a picture of that. It looks kind of like that. How many of you would love to climb across that? Woo! Yeah, okay, I've got two more takers, all right? Thank you, I see those hands. Yeah, see, it's like, preach it! I see those hands. Here we go. All right. This boulder field is crazy. Well, we had another guy with me that as we were going across some of those boulders, some of these boulders are as big as cars. I mean, they're massive. It's amazing. We're going across, and he misses one of those rocks just a little bit, and his ankle and his foot just goes completely sideways. Twists it, his ankle blows up to twice the size of his other ankle. I was like, ah, this is not good. We're going to probably have to call Mountain Rescue. Well, it turns out um, that he, he just swells really, really fast and a lot, and it's not quite as bad as it looks. And so he was able to handle it. it. The swelling went back down after about an hour, and we were able to climb off the mountain, get back to base camp, and then the next day hike out. It was amazing. It was pretty amazing that he was even able to move. All right? But we did that. That night, that second night, we had snow on us. This is in June. Got a couple of inches of snow. Now, oh, doesn't that sound like fun? I am ready to plan something. When you're ready to go, let's do this. Okay? So, but here's the question I have for you. Why did they follow me on such a ridiculous, crazy trip? Here's why. I promised to them an adventure of a lifetime. I promised to them that we'd get to the top of this mountain. And I have a, I have a picture of the view from the top of Bomber Mountain. It is incredible. Most people on planet Earth haven't seen that because they've never climbed this mountain. That's what I love. I promised them an amazing view. And this is just one, by the way. You can see this in every direction. That's just one side of the mountain. It is amazing. And on top of that, this is very interesting, but in 1943, during World War II, a bomber actually crashed on top of this mountain. That's why it's called Bomber Mountain. And I told the guys, I said, there's actually a memorial plaque, and you can go and see the, uh, the wreckage still up there to this day. In fact, I have a picture of the memorial plaque that's up there. I promise these guys an adventure. I promise you will find, we'll, we'll go, we'll see this amazing view, and we're going to honor these servicemen who gave their lives back in 1943 on top of this mountain. It's going to be an amazing trip. I promised that to them. Here's what I didn't promise. I did not promise freedom from pain, suffering, exhaustion, twisted ankles, snow, or vomiting. I didn't promise that. I did promise it would be worth it. God promises to you that it's worth it. If it's true that God loves you, if that's what it says, it does. If it's true that God gave his son, Jesus, to die for you, it does. It promises that. If it's true that God rose Jesus from the dead, it's true. He promises that. And if God promises that the way that you can have a relationship with him is simply to accept a free gift that he has given you, which is Jesus, if that's true, then what also has to be true? 
that these words will change your life. If all that's true, it has to be true that this can change your life. And what also is true is that we should bring as many people with us as we can because if you believe this, then God desires for every one of us to not only know this book, but to know his love. And the question is, do you trust it? Do you believe it? Will you follow it? God might not leave you on some crazy mountain adventure, but he is going to lead you on an adventure, and I'm here to tell you, it's worth it. God loves you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can trust your word, that we can trust who you are, that we can trust your love for us. Lord, if there's anybody in here who you know every heart, you know every mind, you know every person in here, God. You, you just, I know you do. You see them. You know where they're at. If there's anybody in here who they have wanted nothing to do with you, maybe it's because they've had some pretty awful experiences, maybe with you, with church, with maybe with a person, maybe they just had awful things in their family, and they're like, they just don't understand how anyone could love them, let alone you, God. I pray right now that you would your presence, your voice would speak into them and remind them that they are dearly and completely loved. That the words that you share in your word, in the Bible, are true, that you love us and that you died for us and that your whole desire is to see new people come into relationship with you because you love them. Help us to know that we can trust you, that we can trust your word and that we need to know your word so that we know what every good work is that we need to do. I thank you for the opportunity to be together today, to honor mothers today, but also to remember your love for us and that we can trust who you are. We pray this and we ask all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.